In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. Welcome to Season 17 of the No Sleep Podcast. We're excited to begin another season of Frightful Tales with you. Speaking of Frightful Tales, last week, Sleepless Sanctuary Publishing was proud to publish Hide the Knives, the new short story collection by Marcus Demanda. Check the show notes for a link to where you can find this particularly creepy book. And on next week's episode, we'll be revealing the next exciting release on our imprint. It may be closer than you expect. Our theme for this season is a fabulous one. It... wait, no, no, not fabulous. That should be fabulous. Fables, folklore, legends... Tales born of superstitions, enchantments, and menacing, mysterious, mystical myths. And with that in mind, let's get down to business. I've been told that it's extremely important that I share something with you. You see, much like our previous season, Season 17 is going to offer something a bit different in terms of content. In this case, though, it won't be anywhere near as easy as simply hearing it on the podcast. Now, listen very, very carefully. The way it's going to work is... Ah, looks like we don't have time to discuss that today. Maybe you'll work it out for yourselves. Maybe you already have. In our first tale, we sit down and listen to a man providing us with a caution. There's a sycamore forest nearby, you see, and over the years it's gained somewhat of a reputation. Disappearances and deaths, all sorts. But in this tale, shared with us by author Austin R. Ryan, we're reassured that it's totally fine as long as you heed the warnings, and surely everyone does that. Performing this tale is Graham Rowett. So don't just go hog wild and do ridiculous things that will endanger you. It is a safe place to hang out as long as you listen right. 
Out here in Indiana, there's a great grove of sycamore trees that grow a bleached white bark all the way around, except for the smallest cuts of brown. They punch up from the dirty green earth like bones splitting out of the skin. Amateur photographers hike a mile or two down the road to snap pictures of the forest. Professional photographers go deeper in to find where the trees thicken and whiten, very close to the color of bone. Desperate, strange, or just plain stupid photographers go a ways down a cracked road lined with dying, rust-belt towns, all to find the bones of a summer camp that got shut down nearly two decades ago. Now to their credit, the place makes for a damn good photograph. The green and blue tents are half covered in dirt, so they look like little hills rising in between the collapsed cabins. And the sycamores there are the whitest you've ever seen. Like teeth chewing the last of the camp away. About 20 years ago, the camp was doing well. It had built a solid reputation off the backs of several old hands who managed a hiking and canoeing tour of the nearby river. Yet even at its height, we locals rarely sent our kids there. We all had stories about that place. Stories older than the towns we lived in. Stories that most folk didn't listen to. Of the most that didn't listen, there was one boy who didn't listen the most. Well, that's not wholly true. Everybody listens. It's just that some don't listen to the right things at the right time. This boy was that kind. Local son of a small town mayor. He grew up with so much talk rattling around his head that he couldn't sort through it all. He had no idea what words mattered and what words didn't. What most meant when they said he didn't listen was that he didn't listen right. He'd been told six different ways to six different Sundays not to go to that camp, but he'd ignored every story. If he'd have listened, oh, the things he would have heard. In 1966, six hippies went missing, hiking up by those pale sycamores. Weren't found for the better part of a year. When investigators said they caught the hippies' trail, they meant it literally. The hippies' bodies went from tent to tent, blood running in a trail of dashed lines. Each person had a part missing. The first lost her left eye. The second lost her right. The third had no nose sheared right off his face. The fourth was missing a left ear, and all of them were carved open underneath the ribs. Different organs and guts lifted clean out of the body. The fifth got to keep his innards, but he still got it worst of all. Long and deep cuts traced his veins like rivers, letting all the blood out of him so that his skin sat like a loose sack on his bones. They never found the sixth. Further back in 1937, a boy and his father went out to hunt game and reel in some fish for their family to eat. They weren't found until four years later, and by that time they were cleaned down to the bone. Something had propped them up against a sycamore, their arms fixed by thick, hardened sap to two branches each, leaving their legs to dangle. The feet touched the ground, but the toes didn't. Something had plucked all the digits from their hands and feet. Summer of 25, a writer bought land and commissioned a cabin to be built on it. She moved in and wasn't heard from for six years. 
Folks wrote it off as flapper eccentricity until her family got worried and came to visit. They found her cabin door wide open and her skeleton on a bed crusted over with her own blood. Strangest thing was, the bones in her palm had been snatched, but her fingers were all scattered, scratched, and crushed. Some adventuring types used to look for that cabin. It was easy to tell the ones that really found it from the ones that said they did. If they really found it, their eyes said more than their mouths ever did. If you've listened right, you've gathered that there's something deeply, deeply wrong in these particular woods by this particular river. There's something not right about how many people went missing and about how all of them are still missing parts. There's something not right about how their bodies were arranged. There's something simply wrong about how pale those sycamores get. The official reports on all the deaths told reasonable stories. The sixth hippie went wild on drugs and killed the other five. The father and son slumped up against the trees during a bad winter and died of starvation. A highwayman killed the author in her bed, maybe broke her hands because he hated her writing. But if you listened right, you'd know there was much worse than what was in those reports. Even though the boy had been told better, he begged his parents half to death to let him go to that camp. The parents knew the stories and refused for about as long as they could. But anyone who knows teenage boys knows there's plenty of terror in disaffecting one. Stuck between two terrors, the parents called up the camp and got just the right reassurance. This place was run by folks who'd heard the same stories and who'd listened right. All the counselors and staff respected the forest for whatever unknown, awful thing it held. In fact, they'd mapped out just where the danger was. That kind of cartography never could be an exact science, but the counselors knew that, and they didn't treat it like one. The moment you measure folklore by inches and feet is the moment you go missing. Instead, we measured it by stories. The stories told all of us the signs, and the signs told us when to turn back. The subtler signs were heavy sap, low on trees, a distinct lack of wildlife, and trees that shaped themselves like bodies. But the clearest sign was always the white on the tree. When the sycamores became white as bone all the way from root to branch, it was beyond time to turn back. These counselors had the signs all memorized. All of them at least half believed in the abnormal nature of those woods, and all of them carried that belief through in their work. That belief reflected in their record, too. Not a kid went missing. Hell, we rarely even heard of kids leaving scared. Even the townsfolk had a begrudging respect for what that camp did. So the mayor let his son go. Figured it'd be good to give back to a local business anyway. The camp, the forest, the river, all of it was good to the boy at the start. The boy had bad ears, but a winning smile and a nice way of talking he'd inherited from his dad. So he'd made friends with kids and counselors alike. It was all smooth sailing, right up until the canoe trip. See, it was prime camping season, and the camp was at its prime, too. This load of kids was the biggest the camp had ever seen, and the river was already full of other folks camping on the popular sites along the banks, 
the spots that were well away from where the forest got pale. Even worse, two counselors fell sick with the kissing disease. They were young, and the young need their room to be a little irresponsible. Unfortunately, that meant that the staff took on more kids than usual and needed bigger campsites. Now, the weirdest and worst misfortune was that one of the cars had its tires slashed. Some counselors wanted to blame the campers, but it didn't look like a knife had done it. The hole wasn't a clean, straight line. It was more gnarled and jagged, like they'd snagged on a branch and not noticed. That bad tire was a big deal, because they brought the campers up the river in the vans. From there, the campers sailed back down to camp over the course of two days and one night. Since they lacked the vans to get everyone up the river, they decided to send one team going downriver to get picked up the next morning. It'd have been real lucky if the boy hadn't listened when groups were called and accidentally went with the wrong one. Naturally, that was when he listened best. The canoeing went well, as it usually did. The river in that patch of woods is very kind, even if the trees aren't. The real problem came in finding a camping spot. Each place they stopped at was either occupied or too small. As the sun fell, the growing darkness made it harder and harder to set up camp and spy out campsites. What was worse, the kids were getting antsy, their voices shaking with the worry of being out late in an unfamiliar place. When they finally found a spot, they'd already gone in too deep. Their counselor knew it, but they were too far and too tired to go rowing back up to camp, and all the other spots had been taken. If camping here was foolish, then going back was dangerous, and camping deeper in was insane. This counselor believed the stories in full, so when she pulled into the campsite, she immediately went looking for the signs. She could hear animals, Fewer than normal, but still there. That was a good sign. The trees were starting to ring with sap, but it hadn't gotten very low or very thick yet. That was a mixed sign. Last but not least, the sycamores were what locals called half-eaten. There was still some meat on the bones, some brown bark on the white. Another mixed sign. A good sign and two mixed signs was safe just as long as you showed proper respect to the woods and whatever it holds. If she could get the kids to get to bed early and stay in bed, then they'd sleep through the night, no disturbance. Unfortunately, there was just one sign she'd missed, shrouded by the dark of that moonless night. The large and small branches of two sycamore trees bent and curved around each other to form what looked like a wide smile. That smile's still there, believe it or not. In the daylight, you can see it beaming over the camp. Even though the counselor couldn't see that smile, she felt it. On the outside, she was the picture of calm and focus. She helped everyone unload their canoes, set up camp, and get dinner going as though nothing was wrong. On the inside, her mind was running over all the old stories she'd heard. In late spring 1903, 11 anarchists were under threat of getting kicked out of the country on account of the Anarchist Exclusion Act. They fled deep into these woods and were right in the middle of setting up a hidden commune when four went missing. It was damn fine luck for the other seven that they found their lost friends quickly. 
When they saw their comrades cut to ribbons, drained of blood, and missing a whole appendage each, they didn't just leave the forest. They left the whole damn country. They reported in to be deported. Back home, they at least knew where all the horrors lived. Officials didn't corroborate the anarchists' story, just said their friends had a run-in with a bear. Now if you knew a lick about the history of this state, you know better than to buy that. In 1904, there wasn't any official in Indiana about to go deep into that forest just to bury four immigrant, anarchist bodies. In 1861, right when the Civil War broke out, several Union deserters fled into the woods to see if they couldn't ride things out. They didn't get found until a year or two after the war was over. Even then, found was a generous term. What they found of the men were their heads, their arms, and their legs. Their torsos had been amputated off of the rest of their bodies and lost somewhere in the woods. Folks back then had all manner of excuses, ranging from exploded ordnance to bears to Satan. The crude but intentional cuts on the soldiers' limbs and the total lack of torsos spark a lot of belief and a lot more curiosity. A lot of tourists and investigators come up on account of that story. Only reason they'd leave alive was because of how well we lied to them. One of them could spit on my own kin before I'd send them off to find what they were looking for. Thinking over all the stories, the counselor decided to take extra precautions. A situation like this was worry enough that most of the counselors thought about what to do if they were in it. There were folk that had made it through these deep woods, folk that had seen and heard things. Some of those folks would talk your ear off about last night's game, today's lunch, and tomorrow's weather. But if you asked them about what they saw in these woods, it was like something plucked their tongues right out of their mouths. Still, they'd find their voice again and give some advice if it meant keeping other folk alive. What all of them said was this. If you hear the animals go quiet, if you see the white bark start to gnaw away the last bits of brown... If you see the trees twist into limbs and body parts, then your best bet was to get in your tent. Get in your tent and do not shine a light. Do not make a peep. And do not, under any circumstance, open the door. You may hear a terrible scratching, like something's going to cut the tent down, but you do not open up. Being damn good with kids, she'd whipped up a fake story about rabid raccoons that roamed the area that would try to scratch their way in. These raccoons were so fierce they'd scare off all the other animals. However, the rabies fried their brains, so they couldn't figure a tent zipper. She told them that if you kept the tent shut, you'd be safe. Her raccoon story hit the perfect mark of realistic and scary. You couldn't go telling them the truth without a full-blown freakout. You couldn't make up a tall tale too wild, otherwise they wouldn't take it seriously. A kid might even stay up just to see what happens. Any kid who listened to that raccoon story would seal their tent up tight for the whole night. Of course, there was one boy who wasn't listening. He was smiling that sweet, curious smile he had while he watched the white eat away at the brown on the tree behind the counselor. When Tecumseh died in 1813, there were all kinds of stories about curses he put into existence. The strongest curse being the one that killed William Henry Harrison shortly after his inaugural address. 
Some say Tecumseh put a stronger curse on these woods. If Tecumseh could put down curses, he didn't put one down here. The history's older than Tecumseh, and older than America. Around 1710, the French would sail down from Fort Detroit to Fort Vincennes. The French didn't write about folks going missing, just things. They'd write about how string, sewing needles, medicines, and saws would disappear. One French physician complained about how he couldn't bring a single medical book downriver without losing track of it. The natives around here have their stories too, them being here the longest of any of us. Their stories talk about a forest you keep away from. Some of their stories say the forest was a prophecy, turning white and deadly once Europeans settled on the continent. Other stories say that the forest was always cursed, turning any who took shelter in it into a greedy monster. They call it a Wendigo. I was content to leave the story there for a long time, but I stayed here so long that stories started coming to me. It takes some real listening, but you can hear stories older than the tribes here now. Older than written or drawn word. If you listen right, you can hear stories inside your dreams, spoken by people so long dead that they've forgotten the names of their tribes. You can follow those voices into dark caverns. Deep, deep in those caves, you can see where they carved stories of a forest made out of blood and bone all along the smooth walls. You can go into those caves, and you can hear the wind stir up whispers of the long dead. If you listen just right, they'll tell you exactly what lives in those woods. They'll tell you how it brings the white to the trees as it moves. How it frightens quiet and stillness into all that live near it. How it's still bound to this place. How it needs a suit before it can go strolling into town. How it makes that suit, and what happens when it's finished. They'll tell you the whole story of how they became ghosts trapped inside a forest of bones. But this story ain't about ancient bodies. This story's about that boy and the body he left behind. The boy settled into bed when everyone else did, though I know he wanted to stay out and stare up at the stars. From what anyone can tell, he got at least some sleep before it all happened. I hope that he dreamed of his dad and his mom, because they really did love him. I hope that if something like that drags you away, Life's got courtesy enough to give you a good dream before you go. Before the fear and the pain. I hope with everything I have that he felt some kind of love and happiness. What happened? He brought on himself in some part. But he was just a kid. And I know that no kid deserves what he got. The scratching began in the middle of that dark night. It circled around a few tents before it finally settled on his... Knowing how deeply he could sleep, it had to rake hard and loud on that door to get him up. It scratched so loud that it woke the counselor up. She told me that she screamed when she heard him unzip his tent. She wanted to run out and save him, but she didn't. She knew she had more chance of dying herself and getting all the other campers killed than she had of saving him. We all knew she was right, but I still never could look her in the eyes after that. No one saw what happened next, but I've spent a lot of time getting as close to it as I could. 
and I know some things. I know the boy saw the forest for whatever it truly is. I know he saw the wood come alive into a sick impersonation of a person. I know he saw all the tendons, appendages, organs, skin, and everything else the wood had collected. I know he looked deep into all its mismatching parts. I know he saw it grin a wide, empty smile before it grabbed him by the jaw and told him the endings of a hundred stories he hadn't listened to. He was luckier than a lot of others. It only took his teeth and the better part of his jaw after it killed him. It didn't even drag his body off. Still, it was an awful sight. The gums all torn up. The blood pooled in the back of the mouth. The fear and pain that stayed inside his eyes. It still turns my stomach. The camp shut down a bit later. Believe it or not, controversy and legal troubles weren't what did it. When the owner of the camp was setting up for the next year, he heard not a bird chirping in the forest. He saw a sticky sap pooling up along the base of the trees. And in the branches and leaves, he saw long-bodied people dancing in twisted patterns. Worst of all, he saw sycamores that were white all the way through. He knew how to listen right, and he knew that camp had to be shut down. That thing had never pushed out as far as that campsite before. Now it claims new lands every single day. Some say it walks a wide range now. It goes strolling through abandoned towns, looking for things to feed off of and trees to turn to bone. They say that if you stick around here, you'll see it come through. When you do, your best bet is to clutch the sign of whatever is divine to you and pray that it's not missing something that you got because it don't bother knocking anymore. Truth is, there's not much left the thing needs. It's got a fine suit already. It walks more and it kills more, too. I've seen the deer, raccoons, even the fish and the birds that it leaves behind. No animal cuts up other animals like that. The thing is, there's not much left to kill around here. The boy's death chased most folk off. The rest left with the jobs. This town was dying long before that thing came and put the last nail in the coffin. I thank God for that. Everyone bitches about the economy or China or whatever kills little towns like mine. I thank God for all of it. I thank God for getting everyone the hell away from that thing. You know what's best for you? Then you should get away too. Sure, I'm staying. But that's only because there's no sense in me leaving now. I'm too old to be moving. And I've got unfinished business here. See those trees over there? Each day I come out and look at those trees. And each day they're a little bit wider. It's easy to miss. But I notice it since I've been here all my life. See, I'm gonna stick around until either I die, or those trees over there turn white as bone all the way around top to bottom. I'm going to wait for whatever is in those woods to come walking into my town, and when it does, I'm going to knock my son's teeth out of its fucking mouth.
breaking down in the middle of nowhere can be a nightmare. Definite cause for panic, especially if you're in a rush to get to your destination. But in this tale, shared with us by author Tors Anders Olven, we can be grateful for good Samaritans. I join Jeff Clement in performing this tale. So let's get on with things, because I have a story to present to you and miles to go before I sleep. You're not supposed to get into a stranger's car. Not in this day and age. Not in any day and age, really. But I have places to be, people to see. It's like that Robert Frost poem, you know? The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. My wife, Ellie, Eleanor, is pregnant. Any day now, the docs say. Any day now, and I'll be a father. Stuff like that puts things into perspective, you know? Changes how you view the world. Changes how far you are willing to go. So I got into the car with a stranger. Couldn't wait any longer. Promises to keep. The woods are lovely. No doubt about that, though. Dark and deep, too. I walked maybe five miles for my piece-of-shit car before the stranger pulled over. In that time, I met them. Many of them. Beings of the deep and the dark, lost wanderers and souls, pale faces and muttering voices creeping through the dusk. But I didn't fear them. Haunted back roads or not, I had places to be, and I told them as much. I have to get home, I said. Home to my wife and my soon-to-be family. A particularly gaunt figure wouldn't leave me, though followed me for miles, his harrowing shape always in the periphery, gentle whispers in my ear, stay with us, come with us, you belong with us. But I persevered, for Ellie, for my boy. I could feel his breath on my neck when the stranger pulled over, cold as ice, emotionless, hollow, violently lonely. I knew then, if the car hadn't pulled over, if the stranger hadn't stopped, that I would be with them now, the lost ones, forever shackled to this road, to the depths of the forest, alone and afraid. Instead, I climbed into the back seat. Thank you, sir. I'm in quite a rush. The stranger reminded me of my father, a little bit older maybe, in his fifties or sixties. Calm, gentle exterior. I told him about my wife and my current predicament, but he never spoke a word, just nodded silently, eyes shifting back and forth between the road and the rearview mirror. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, I muttered to myself. When he pulled over, my mind was already starting to slip. 
a heavy mist descending on an already worn and weary soul. He turned around slowly, tears streaming down his face. He seemed so familiar then, like a faraway memory of something that never happened. You can rest now, Dad. You've kept your promise. You found me. I have promises to keep. It wasn't your fault. The brakes... The brakes just failed. It happens. Just one of those things. And miles to go before I sleep. Please, Dad. You have to move on. You have to rest. And miles to go before I sleep. Going to stay with relatives can sometimes be a weird experience, even when you're very close to them. Any small change since your last visit can make things feel exceedingly alien or unusual. And in this tale, shared with us by author L.P. Hernandez, we're reminded that it can be even more unsettling when that change relates to your loved one's health. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Danielle McRae, Jesse Cornett, Aaron Lillis, and Kristen DiMercurio. So try to be understanding. Maybe he's just enjoying himself. But don't be afraid to call for help when Grandpa won't stop dancing. When Grandpa smiled, it was as if he was trying to remember how. His unsteady eyes were like the underside of a glacier, a blue so pale they nearly disappeared into the whites. They quivered, as if uncomfortable in their own sockets. But it was his smile that had my attention then. His attempt to smile, actually. My little sister, Dorothy, spoke in that breathless way of hers, Aimless ideas that spiraled in and out of coherence as she scraped her fork across the porcelain plate, either unaware of or immune to the horrendous screeches that resulted. Her lips were stained orange with spaghetti sauce, and I marveled at her ability to eat without impending her speech. Mom once said she was like an idling engine, and Dad had said the key must have broken off in the ignition. They were probably landing in Dublin then, where it was already night, the first stop of their European vacation they cleverly labeled a second honeymoon so that they would not have to take us. Grandpa nodded and opened his mouth again, still failing in his attempt to force his cracked lips into a smile. My attention turned from his lips to his teeth, which were like a cemetery after a flood, tombstones canted and crooked. He nodded as Dorothy described each birthday gift she received in the order she opened them. But I think his mind was elsewhere. 
But you didn't send a present this year, did you? Why didn't you send one, Grandpa? Did you know I turned six? I'm going to real school after summer. <gasps> but Dorothy was not asking questions she wanted answered. The silverware rattled on the table as Grandpa's knee collided with it. We both looked at his leg as it bounced up and down. He grimaced, revealing the metal from old dental work in the back of his mouth, and slapped his hand on his thigh. The leg stopped, but he strained to keep it still. His shirt sleeve inched up his arm, and he quickly tugged it back into place. He'd been jumpy since our parents dropped us off that morning, but Mom and Dad were so focused on their trip, I don't think they noticed. Was it because Grandma always sent the presents? Do you miss her? This time, Dorothy waited for a response. Grandpa looked to me, icy eyes swimming in salty puddles. His lips danced between a smile and a sneer, never settling on either. My heart dropped for a moment, the way it does when remembering pain it had only just forgotten. You don't hear that? Grandpa pressed his leg to the floor. Hear what? He just shook his head. The room was indicative of his efforts to cope with her loss earlier that year. The empty jar of pasta sauce on its side to the left of the stove, which was splattered with its contents. Grandma made her sauce from scratch. That this store brand sauce was served to her granddaughters would have been a scandal had she been alive. There were dishes next to the sink, probably more than in the cupboards. I realized Grandpa might not know where they went. He only ever needed to find his mugs, one for coffee and one for beer. Instead of putting the dishes away, he made towers of them. It's okay, Grandpa, I said and reached my hand across the table. Dorothy, sensing she might have overstepped a boundary she did not know existed, twirled her spaghetti. I gritted my teeth at the sound of her fork shrieking over the plate and squeezed Grandpa's hand harder than I intended. He winced and pulled away, his watery eyes swelling from either pain or confusion. His knee was shaking again, seemingly outside of his control, as if there was music only he heard. Grandpa? He seemed smaller than our visit the previous summer, but also not. The seams of his shirt strained to contain his arms, which had always been wiry in my memories. His clothes probably shrunk because Grandma always took care of that. He pulled at the fabric as if trying to loosen them. Yes. His eyes grew wide. Maggie. Maggie. Yes, Maggie. Are you okay? He closed his eyes, dabbed at his nose, and took a deep breath. Yes. Just thinking about things. Dorothy reached for his other hand. He flinched when their fingers connected. It's okay, Grandpa. It's okay to miss her. Her? He was looking at the untouched pile of spaghetti in front of him. Grandma. Oh, yes, I, I know. I cleared the table as Dorothy and Grandpa went outside to watch the stars. The farm spread over 160 acres of pasture, though it was slowly returning to nature. The fields once patrolled by cattle were overgrown, the surrounding forest encroaching year by year. 
Saplings no longer threatened by hooves reached for the sun. At night, when the house lights were extinguished, the sky was full dark, interrupted only by flickering stars. I joined Grandpa and Dorothy on the porch, feeling my way around the wicker furniture, which occupied the same space it had throughout my childhood. The chair creaked in a thousand places as I sat. Though I could not see him, I knew Grandpa was in his rocking chair by the rhythmic squeak as he moved. Crickets and other insects filled the gaps in the conversation with chittering, quieted now and then as squelching frogs united to temporarily dominate the night. How many stars are there? By sound, I pinpointed Dorothy's location to the porch steps. Grandpa's voice strained, as if there was some great pressure within him. Oh, lots and lots. Yeah, but how many? His rocking chair creaked, but there was another sound alongside it. A knocking or a tapping. There was nothing beneath the floorboards, just a gap of three feet and then dirt. So the tapping was like far-off thunder ricocheting through a forest, too loud for one old man's boot. It was like he couldn't stop. Why don't you start counting, dear? She did, and we listened to her. Sometimes she made it past 50 before she lost track. Grandpa and I chatted about books and the weather, topics intended to redirect his thoughts away from Grandma, but his words grew fuzzy. It sounded as if he was rousing from a nap over and over. Eventually, Dorothy abandoned her attempt to count the stars. I'm glad we're here, Grandpa. His boots stomped in response. Dorothy slept with her mouth open and snored right through half a dozen jabs at her ribs with my elbow. Even sleep could not quiet her. The ceiling fan whirred, softening some of her noise. Though I was relaxed, I found sleep elusive. I had slept on that bed many times in my life. But it was not my bed. The house without my grandmother in it felt so empty. I noticed the minor details. The missing glass of water she always left for us. The potpourri pot she refreshed before each visit was cold and unplugged on the dresser. There was a clock in the room, which ticked someplace I could not see. And so I do not know the hour I first heard Grandpa walk down the hall. They were heavy footsteps as if he had not removed his work boots before retiring for bed, and the sound made the nocturnal noises beyond the walls of the house seem small. His footsteps were uneven, almost as if his legs were of different lengths, or if one foot had difficulty finding the floorboards. He traversed the stairs slowly, the creak of the wood slicing through the strange drumbeat of his boots. They did not creak under my weight, but at 13 years old, I barely weighed 90 pounds. What are you doing up so late, Grandpa? I wondered this as I mentally mapped his journey into the living room. There was no light beneath the door, meaning Grandpa was walking in the dark. Why would he be walking in the dark? I was wide awake then, sister snoring to my right, every bug in Alabama seemingly outside the window, and Grandpa stumbling blindly around the living room. There was no real pattern to the rumbling of his boots over the floorboards. By the sound of it, he had not reached the kitchen. What else would he be doing so late at night? 
I imagined I would soon hear ice clattering in his mug, or perhaps the hiss of a beer can opening. But it was just him moving around the living room, bumping into a coffee table, knocking the remote control onto the floor, and then kicking it against a wall. For 10 minutes, maybe 20, the noise continued. I was confused and abruptly aware of the distance between me and my parents. I sat up, hoping the movement would rouse my sister, but it didn't even interrupt her snoring. I patted the nightstand to my left, probed the drawer and touched items I could not visualize. I knew my grandpa though, and continued to search until my fingers found the cold metal of a flashlight, likely heavier than a baseball bat. He disliked the term prepper, but was prepared, if not for the apocalypse, at least for the power outages that accompanied many thunderstorms in that part of Alabama. I eased out of bed, testing the flashlight on the far wall. The light was a murky yellow and fainter than I would have guessed considering its weight. Dorothy slept through both the disturbance on the first level of the house and the introduction of light into the room, feeble as it was. I felt as if my bones were replaced by cold clay, a creeping uneasiness that robbed the strength from my legs as I stood. I knew, with a big sister's intuition, that it would not be good for Dorothy to wake. Something was happening to Grandpa. The floors whined as I shuffled across the room, nothing rising above the level of Grandpa's noise, though. The hinges, greased by his ever-ready WD-40, opened without a sound, and I stepped into the hallway. The familiar shapes and sights, a small table with a decorative base, an oversized family portrait in which my mom was also 13, were strange and foreign to me. Their colors were corrupted, sizes distorted in the darkness. The open door to Grandpa's bedroom made the cold clay soften, robbing more strength, and I placed a hand on the wall to steady myself. I stood at the head of the stairs, the rumbling below accelerating in intensity. The wooden stairs accepted my weight without protest as I descended. Faster and faster, as if he was stomping phantom cockroaches. I pivoted on the landing, swallowed the lump in my throat, and aimed the flashlight toward the bottom of the stairs. The puddle of light swayed as my hand shook. My extremities tingled, and I recalled the distress on Grandpa's face at the dinner table, how he had to push his leg to the floor to prevent it from bouncing, how he tugged his sleeve as if hiding an inappropriate tattoo on his wrist. The beam carved through the shadows, revealing the pattern of faded roses on the couch. I shuddered, imagining the sensation of the crushed velvet against my bare skin. I caught a glimpse of an arm opposite the couch and dropped the flashlight, catching it just before it would have clattered on the floorboards. The tunk sounds were frenzied, nearly matching the pace of my fluttering heartbeat. I shone the flashlight into the living room, my left hand grasping the banister for stability. His back was to me, wispy white hair looking as if he had survived a lightning strike. His head was moving so fast, the motion erratic and jerky, almost as if he was going into spasms. I lowered the beam and caught sight of his flailing arms, which moved without rhythm, reaching blindly into the darkness as if each limb decided it no longer wanted to be part of his body. His legs were a flurry, kicking and stomping. The coffee table was tipped on its side, 
TV guides and coasters spilled onto the floor. And he wore the same clothes he had at dinner. A checkered, long-sleeved shirt and blue jeans so faded they were nearly gray. But they were not whole. There were tears in the fabric. And where the fabric was torn, it appeared as if there was a wetsuit beneath. Was he dancing in his sleep? Grandpa. Immediately, I hoped he did not hear me. Faster and faster, head whipping back and forth, arms pulled by ghosts. He bumped into the entertainment center, which might have weighed as much as a compact car, and turned. I screamed. His eyes were liquid onyx, not just black, but voids of light. And he kept dancing, 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 his legs stomping the floorboards, arms thrashing. His mouth was wide open and his cheeks glistened with tears. He moved in my direction on spider legs, still dancing, dancing, dancing. Grandpa? I retreated a step. He danced over the fallen coffee table, mouth open to scream, but no sound came from him. Grandpa! He danced past the couch. The black pools of his eyes flickered icy blue for a moment. I thundered up the stairs and ran in place in the hallway, my socks sliding over the floorboard, searching for traction. I scampered into the bedroom, closed the door behind me, and locked it. I padded back to bed and slid beneath the covers. Up the stairs he came, and then he was silent. It was just Dorothy snoring and the bugs. He was outside the door. Go away, go away, go away, go away, go away. But he kept dancing. He danced past the room until he reached the end of the hall, and he danced there for a few minutes. He danced past my bedroom door, lingering on the opposite side of it, before moving down the hall toward his bedroom. The vase was knocked from the table, and it rolled down the stairs to the landing. He followed behind it, down the stairs and into the living room again, back up the stairs and up and down the hall for hours. Exhaustion settled into my bones, peeling the fear away in strips until the sound of his boots clomping through the house became the background noise of dreams. When the sound ceased, I woke and blinked, hearing only Dorothy in the night outside. I shone the flashlight at the clock and squinted to make sense of its hands. There was a quick burst of motion beyond the door, an eagle screech as the ladder to the attic was lowered. Grandpa was not asleep. The ladder unfolded, rumbling the floorboards when it struck them. He ascended, and I then heard his footsteps above me. It was 3 a.m. I dreamed Grandpa was in the room, dancing in the corner. I only saw his boots, flashing through a pale blue swath of moonlight on the floor. The flashlight would not reach him, as if his body repelled light. When I woke, I was aware of many things at once. The light in the room was midday white, not the yellow-gray of morning. My muscles were like old rubber bands from a restless night, with sleep and consciousness wrestling for control of my mind. The sound of thumping above me burned through my fugue. He couldn't still be dancing, could he? A scream from outside. 
I bolted to the door on spaghetti legs, my spine feeling like glass as I passed beneath the slightly swaying attic cord. The living room was in disarray, and the kitchen fared no better. Dorothy's attempt at making breakfast sprayed across the stove, a scorched pan and an abandoned attempt at grits. I saw her through the window above the sink, jumping over the sprinkler, (laughs) screaming and giggling. She caught sight of me. Come on! Though I had no bathing suit, I obliged. I only wanted to speak with my parents, but they were not accessible then. The loudest voice in my head, however, challenged my experience during the night, and it began to feel less real. We leaped over the sprinkler again and again, holding hands or chasing each other. I threatened to grab an old cow patty from the field and throw it at her, which sent her squealing around the back of the house. I'm just kidding. Movement from a window drew my attention to the left. A figure standing in the kitchen, facing the front door. It was probably just the way the shadows collected on his face, but the skin looked striped with satin black, like a seal's. Grandpa? It turned my direction. I held in my scream and ran after Dorothy. I was prepared to scoop her into my arms and keep running, but then I heard the barn door slam shut. When I worked up the courage to enter the house again, there was no sound from the attic. Grandpa was gone. We didn't see him the rest of the day. I called the hotel in Dublin, but my parents had not returned from their night out. Hi, Mom and Dad. I hope you're having fun and remember to bring me something special. Here's Maggie. Dorothy then passed the phone to me. I took a deep breath before I spoke. Hey, we miss you. If you get this and it's not too late, you can call. Um, I think Grandpa... My voice trailed off as I glanced out the kitchen window and saw the door to the barn was open. After a few seconds of silence, the phone beeped and a recorded voice invited me to save the message or record it again. I hung up the phone and scanned the yard. Dorothy was busy in the pantry. What do you think they'll buy us? I heard the sound of rustling bags. I don't know. What is Ireland famous for? Um, potatoes, I think. And poets. I flinched. Well, I hope they don't bring home either of those. I didn't think about it. I darted to the front door and locked it. Maybe they'll get something cool in Paris. How did she not hear? The doorknob rattled, and the sound of Grandpa's boots persisted, slamming into the floorboards as if he intended to break through them. They were like the gunshots we sometimes heard during deer hunting season. It felt like there was cotton in my throat. What's up, Maggie? I glanced over my shoulder. She was elbow deep into a bag of Cool Ranch Doritos. The door shuddered. It's Grandpa. She smiled. (laughs) Well, let him in, silly. I shook my head. No, it's... it's a game. It's a game Grandpa and I played, but you were too little to remember. Her eyes sparkled at the mention of a game. Like hide-and-go-seek or ghost in the graveyard? I nodded as the door shuddered again. The wood creaked and sagged a bit. We have to hide. Grandpa's going to get inside, and we have to hide. Let's go upstairs. She nodded and took off, munching Doritos as she ran. I followed behind, 
jolting every time Grandpa struck the door. In our bedroom? Uh, no. I think he'd find us there. I walked past her, jumped, and seized the cord to the attic door. Dorothy giggled at the sound of wood cracking downstairs. Wow! Grandpa really wants to get inside. I unfolded the ladder. You first. Okay. She scampered up, trailing a fog of Doritos-scented air. There was a tremendous crash from downstairs that corresponded with the thud of Dorothy reaching the attic floor. As I climbed up the rungs, I reached around and grabbed the cord. Once inside the attic, I pulled on the ladder, folding it into itself while still gripping the cord. The attic darkness retreated as Dorothy flipped on the light switch. (laughs) This is fun! My heartbeat thudded in my ears. Though I barely heard her, I knew she was much too loud. We, We have to be quiet. Grandpa will find us and we'll lose the game. Dorothy nodded and mimed zipping her lips. I heard him stomping through the house, but it was directionless like the night before. Maybe he couldn't see out of his new eyes. The coffee table in the living room skidded and something was kicked into the wall. Look at Grandpa's game. Huh? Grandpa's game. Look, he's got all these notes. This must be a grown-up game. I knew what the game was at once, though this was not a commercial version of it. Don't touch that. Dorothy withdrew her fingers from the board and gave me a wounded look. I picked up the notebook and read the last entry, written as if with numbed hands. Only three letters. They occupied the entire page. I am. It sounded as if the stairs were crumbling beneath him. What's happening down there? A bit of doubt had crept into her voice. I waved her off and flipped through the notebook to the first page. There were questions written in Grandpa's typical, minuscule style. On the top line, there was a date. February 28th of that year. Only a couple of weeks after Grandma passed. Below each question was a word. Sometimes a couple of words. Mostly, it was yes and no. Question. Is anyone there? Answer. Yes. Question. Are you here with me? Answer. Yes. Question. How do I know you're real? Answer. No response. I flipped through the next couple of pages. Much of what was written was similar. Grandpa attempting to learn if he was just talking to himself. On the fourth page, he appeared to have a breakthrough. Question. If it's really you, Shirley, tell me something only you would know. Grandpa stomped up and down the hall directly below us, sounding like a blind gorilla. Dorothy cradled herself, but said nothing. Her eyes were fixed on the attic door. Answer. Page 479 of the book. I did not know which book was indicated, but Grandpa did. Beneath those words was a diary-like entry written with cramped letters. It was from her. It was from Cheryl. She must have known something was coming and she left me a note. She always wanted me to read that book and knew I would find it someday. Oh, this is wonderful. I don't have you, darling, but I have your letter. Grandpa abandoned the question-answer format from there. He sometimes recorded what the board told him and added his own thoughts and ideas to it. 
I flipped through a few pages. Grandpa collided with a wall below us, rattling the little table and causing the planchette to fall to the floor. What's wrong with Grandpa? Dorothy wrapped herself into a tight ball. I imagined him below, sniffing like his old horse red, eyes as black as a pond under a moonless sky. I held up a finger and pressed it to my lips. Back down the hall, sniffing and stumbling. I don't think he's playing a game. The phone in the kitchen rang, barely audible over Grandpa's racket. Mom and Dad? No, we can't. The answering machine turned on, and Grandma's voice cut through the den. It's Cheryl and Joe. I'm probably in the garden, and he's probably chasing the calf somewhere. Leave your name and number, and we'll call back. The world went silent. At that moment, the loudest sound in the house was my own heartbeat. My breath ached in my lungs, which felt like an overfilled balloon. Hey, kids. Hey, Dad. Hope you're having fun, and we'll call back tomorrow. Love you all. Mom? Grandpa tramped down the stairs, the wood exploding beneath the heel of his boots. Silence. Just my heartbeat. Just the sound of Dorothy's rapid breaths. There was a brief, chipmunk sound of the tape rewinding. Over and over. Ten minutes. A half hour. The peaks and valleys of Dorothy's fear left her in a sleeping heap next to the table. I turned my attention back to the notebook as Grandma's recorded voice echoed through the house. I think I can see him in my dreams. It's like a far-off thing, like stars you only notice after you stare into the blackness a while. That's what he is, just a shadow hidden among other shadows. I flipped through a few pages. He said I can see her. He says there is no past and no future for him. All things are happening at once. He says I just need to take a small piece of him into me. I've thought of other possibilities, other paths to her, but my children would never forgive me. And it's just a small piece, he says, just a seed. I flip through more pages, the letters so small at times I could not make out the words. I did what he asked, what it asked. It hurts, it hurts so much. It's like a fire ant in my soul. The board doesn't answer anymore. Maybe I won't need it. Maybe we won't. A moaning downstairs, accompanying my grandmother's voice. I skipped further ahead, only a few pages from the end of the notebook. It hurts. I can't see her. He said I would see her again, but the world is shrinking, like a pinhole now. He takes up so much space. It's slipping away. Even these words, even my hands, I can't feel them like I did before. We can't. We are tired. The board won't answer me. We are tired. We must rest. We, I, we. On the next page, I am fading. My bones hurt. I ask the board to take it back. The girls will be here and I don't know what to do. The sound from downstairs was like nothing I had ever heard before. It was as if the earth ripped open and the soundtrack to hell burst forth. I smothered my ears and it changed nothing. Grandpa's scream was soon accompanied by both mine and Dorothy's. 
hot embers in my ears. I wanted to carve out my eardrums. I would have preferred to be deaf for the rest of my life than to listen for five more seconds. But then it was just Dorothy screaming, which subsided after a few seconds. Then it was just our breaths. I waited. Ten minutes. Fifteen. Dorothy begged to come with me. She was terrified of the board, of Grandpa's writing. I'll come back. I need to make sure it's safe. She waited at the top of the ladder as I descended. Oh my God. The stairs were destroyed. I used the banister and the wall to work my way to the living room. It smelled like the ocean, of a low tide and the sea life that could not make it back to the water. It was brighter in the living room than it should have been, and I soon learned why. The kitchen wall was gone. The sink. Grandpa's delicate tower of dishes were broken on the tiles. I was staring outside, at the grass still sparkling with dew from the sprinkler, at tracks two inches deep in the softened earth, longer than my forearm, at a shadow stalking through the untended field where there used to be cattle, but no more, at a pile of shredded jeans and, mixed within, shredded flesh and wiry hair. A bomb had gone off in his work boots. I hadn't heard Dorothy approach. She looked first to the pile of cloth and viscera, and then to the figure parting the sea of grass. A black swath, as if excised from the night sky itself. A sky without stars. No longer dancing, moving with purpose to some other destiny. No, not Grandpa. Not anymore. that wonderful vacation spot you used to visit as a kid. So many fond memories and fun moments. Is it any wonder then that some people move to the site of happy childhoods past when they become adults? And in this tale, shared with us by author Ryan Berg, we meet one such man who soon discovers that being a resident means being privy to the darker side of the seemingly idyllic town. Performing this tale is Atticus Jackson. So maybe sometimes it's better to remain a visitor. Keep your rose-tinted specks on. Otherwise, if you remove them, you might end up reading The Phantom Bridge Reports. Let me start by telling you all what I do and where I live. I'm a deputy for my town's local sheriff's department. I live in a secluded little place in Northern California that lies right next to a river. Some of the houses here are even built practically on top of the damn thing. I'm not going to tell you the name of my town or even the river 
for fear of losing my job. What I will tell you, though, the thing that I'm dying to tell you all about is that there is something seriously wrong with this place. Now, don't get me wrong. I love living here. In fact, this place has been a vacation spot for my family for as far back as my parents care to remember. We'd frequently come here to visit when I was a child, and I have nothing but fond memories of the place. Being a deputy here doesn't quite carry the same excitement that comes with being a member of the San Francisco Police Department, but it definitely has its perks. It's beautiful, for one thing. Another plus is the people. They all have that sort of small-town-friendly vibe going on. And being that I work for their sheriff's department and all, I get showered with love and respect from all angles. I do miss the excitement, though. Being a city cop is full of car chases and pandemonium that could really make you feel alive. But in the end, I had to leave that life behind for reasons which I won't be discussing right now. Anyway... I won't bore you with the details of my life. What I really want to talk about is... The bridge. Now, I know most of you won't believe me when I tell you that there's a bridge that appears... and disappears at different points up and down the river. Well, I didn't believe it at first either. Even after the bizarre shit that I've seen and heard... I still have trouble accepting any of it is real... That man, stuck in the middle of the sky, screaming in agony. God, it was awful. I never believed in ghosts or ghouls or any of that crap. But after living here for the past year, I just... I don't know what the hell I believe anymore. It's been eating me up inside something fierce. And for the purpose of my sanity, I can't keep this a secret anymore. Even if it means I risk losing my job. It's all in the reports. The reports that I've been spending all my downtime obsessing over. Every detail. Every last word. I practically have them all memorized by now. At least the ones that they would let me see. It all started with a conversation I overheard the other deputies having. They were in the break room of the station and they were talking about some shit that happened a few years ago. As soon as I walked in, they all got real quiet and changed the subject. So I asked them what the deal was. They told me I wouldn't understand because I'm not from here. I told them to try me. It might be more understanding than they think. This was when I first arrived from the city, so I wasn't exactly one of the popular kids yet. I felt like an outsider. These men all grew up in this place, and some of them even went to high school together, so I, I tried my best to be respectful. They finally agreed to tell me, but that I probably wouldn't believe it. 
They started talking about some of the cases they've had and calls they've had to respond to. Some of these incidents were the town's residents, and some involved out-of-towners. All of them revolved around this bridge that runs across the river. Only, this isn't a normal bridge. It only appears to some people, and never in the exact same spot twice. (laughs) I thought they had to be fucking with me. But when I looked into their faces, I realized I was the only one laughing. Blake, who's now one of my best friends in the department, told me to come with him so he could show me something. I followed him and he led me to her file room. He went to the back and opened a filing cabinet that was in the corner. The cabinet looked different than the others, and it had a little symbol on the side that I've never seen or noticed before. Blake pulled out a binder, then locked the cabinet back up immediately. He dropped it down on a nearby desk and it landed with a thud. Then he told me to have fun as he walked out of the room. I picked up the binder right away and went back to my desk. My curiosity was piqued now. These were actual professional reports. Now, they may or may not have been officially on the record, but there's no way that they were faked. The incidents written down on them had to be real at least from an investigative standpoint. I looked at the title on the binder. It read, The Phantom Bridge Reports, in large, italicized font. I started flipping through the contents. They didn't seem to be in any particular order. After reading a few of them, I felt like I was in some kind of bizarre dream. These reports were the Stuff of nightmares. I can't adequately describe how utterly surreal these occurrences were. It's it's best if I just share them with you. Which is what I'm going to do now. I'm going to try my best to describe exactly what was in the reports. And what I gathered from the deputies who were assigned to the cases and calls without any embellishments. (sighs) Here we go. Seven-year-old boy goes missing. The first report I read was about the seven-year-old son of a family who had just moved here about a month prior to his disappearance. I don't know too many details about this one, because the deputy assigned to the case, Kyle, wasn't willing to speak much about it. He just gave me a few extra details other than what was in the report. The river was low around this time, and there were parts where the rocks and dirt at the bottom were almost fully exposed. The boy was having trouble adjusting to his new home and surroundings, so he often liked to run off and play in the creek bed, which was a couple hundred yards behind the family's property. One day, he was playing down by the river with his toys when he spotted a bridge off to his right. 
When questioned by Kyle later, he would tell him that it spanned a distance of about 50 feet across the river from the cliffs overlooking the water. He would later tell his parents that the bridge looked old and dirty. Due to the bridge seemingly appearing out of thin air, the boy became frightened and ran back home to tell his parents what he had seen. He was known to possess an overactive imagination and often pretended to be off in some make-believe world. Therefore, the parents dismissed the boy's story as part of some game he was playing. A few days later, the boy returned to the same spot of the creek where he was playing before and again noticed the bridge. This time, rather than becoming frightened, he became intrigued and began to venture towards it. When the boy got close to the underside of it, he spotted what appeared to be a man by some bushes growing on the sides of the bank. The man approached the boy and told him that he was from somewhere called the Grey Place. He offered to take the boy there, promising to relieve him of his sad life here. The boy would later recall that he couldn't see the man's face because he seemingly only walked backwards towards him. He was dressed in baggy, hooded garb, which covered his whole body. The boy fled back to the house and told his mother about the encounter. She immediately called the sheriffs and filed a report about a strange man who had tried to abduct her son. She also banned her son from playing by the river after the deputy came by and questioned the boy. Now, about a month after the previous events, the boy had gotten into an argument with his mother. She locked him in his room, but he snuck out of the window and ran down to the creek bed. He was spotted by a man driving on the road near that part of the river. The boy never returned home after this. The mother immediately filed a missing persons report for his son, and posters were put up all over town, including pictures of the boy. It was never found. However, 31 days after the missing persons report was filed, it was reported by a town local to be walking along the river a few miles from the family's home, holding the hand of a man wearing hooded clothes. After spotting the boy, the local gave chase, but lost sight of them after turning a corner on the riverbank. That was the final sighting. Newlyweds Encounter Bridge The next report involved a couple from out of town who were just driving through. They had gotten married in San Diego and were taking a road trip through California, according to Sammy, the deputy who questioned them afterwards. They were driving down one of the roads that runs parallel with the river, trying to find a way back up to the highway. A couple miles down, they reached a secluded spot, and discovered that a large bridge was constructed over a portion of the river. If they were to cross it, it would mean that they wouldn't have to drive all the way around to get to where they were going, and the bridge would act as a shortcut. Even though it looked like it was placed in kind of a strange spot, the couple decided to cross it to the other side, where another road closer to the highway was waiting for them. They described the bridge as appearing strong and sturdy. They said it had had a large truss, 
and it looked like it had just been built recently. It spanned a length of about a hundred feet and had a raised deck which connected the two sides of the river. They recalled it was a bright red color with a thick glossiness to it, and that it shined bright where the sun hit. The man said it was completely overkill for the purpose of crossing a small patch of water. The couple drove over it with no problems and took their time to gawk at its engineering beauty. The woman took a couple of pictures of the truss jutting up on both of the sides using her phone camera as they slowly rolled over the platform. They both suspected that it might be some kind of tourist attraction, constructed to give outsiders, as well as the locals, something to marvel at when they passed through. And being that it was placed right where they needed a bridge, at the exact same time they needed it, they weren't complaining. When they reached the other side, however, they noticed something was horribly wrong. The bridge had put them in the exact same spot they started from. They were now back on the other side of the river from where they were supposed to be. They were staring out the windshield at the river from the point right before their car had started up the raised platform in the first place. Only now, the bridge was gone. The man slammed on the car brakes before and was driving his Honda Accord directly into the water. And after the car came to a stop, the couple both stared at each other completely baffled, questioning their own sanity. They both had the same account of what had happened though, so they figured it had to be real. They decided to make a stop by the sheriff's department before making their way back home tell them about the strange event. Sammy was there to fill out the report. She said they both had a look of confused fear on their faces and seemed dazed while they drank their cups of coffee, given to them as a courtesy by the employees working at the station. She suggested they look on the woman's phone at the pictures she took. When they did, they found the photos had been replaced by some strange pictures of trees trees that appeared to be deep within some forest. After this, they both became really spooked and just wanted to get the hell out of town. So they got in their car and headed for the highway immediately. Now, the really strange thing about this is that the woman actually called the station a month later and asked to speak with Sammy. She told Sammy that she had been having some weird dreams about being trapped in some ancient forest. They were nightmares, really. The worst kind. And she would wake up screaming and scaring the living hell out of her new husband. She said that in the dreams, there were these trees that seemed to pulse like they were alive. And they would tell her horrible things that she didn't want to know. Things about the people she knew and relatives close friends and distant family members. Sammy couldn't do anything for her, really. All she could do was tell her to maybe consult with a psychiatrist or seek out some kind of therapy. The woman got all offended at the situation and hung up angrily. She hasn't called the station since. Jogger, out for a stroll, 
Another report contained within those first few that I looked at involved a jogger who was out for a stroll one morning. The man was a local in his 30s and lived in a neighborhood about a mile from the river before he moved. He would go for these jogs most mornings before work. He always set out just before dawn and would time his run so he could watch the sunrise as soon as he reached the river. He would rest on the banks and enjoy a protein bar while watching a beautiful sunrise make its way over the mountains. He told this information to Blake while he was in a complete state of panic. Apparently, Blake knew this man personally. He was an old buddy of his. The morning of the incident, the man set out for his usual jog. He left while it was still dark out and managed to make it to the river just in time for the sun to come creeping up. As he was sitting on the riverbank eating his breakfast, he noticed something down a little further from where he was. It was a bridge, half hidden behind some trees. Now, the man had taken this route every morning, like clockwork and had never seen a bridge that crossed the river on any of his runs. But, being a local of this town since childhood, he had heard legends about a bridge that sometimes appeared to certain people. He never believed any of it, though. And even now, as he stared at this odd structure that seemed to have appeared out of thin air, he still thought that maybe someone was playing a trick on him or something. So... He went to go investigate. When he reached it, he could see it was a covered bridge, meaning it had a roof and some walls covering most of the walkway. He said it looked old, rickety, and dilapidated, and that it seemed like it could fall into the river any minute. Half the wood was unpainted and splintered, and the covered part leaned a little bit off-center. It was right in between a large group of trees which wrapped their branches around it, like bony fingers coming up from the dirt. It connected two opposing cliffs on the riverbanks that spanned about 40 feet. And it was high above the water, with a good 30-foot drop in store for anything that fell off. The man immediately noticed how dark it was inside the covered structure. There was light coming in from the other side, but in the middle it was like all the light had been stripped away. He thought that if somebody had gone through all this trouble just to fuck with them, by constructing a goddamn bridge practically overnight, he might as well see it through. So he ventured inside. About ten feet in, things started to get weird, the man told Blake. He said that suddenly... There was a different atmosphere. It was nice and breezy from the cool morning air one second. And then, it was like a dry heat sauna. There was also this putrid smell coming in from all directions, which he likened to a pit full of rotting, dead animals. It was suffocating, and his breaths were becoming strained. But, his curiosity pushed him forward. After walking about another ten feet, he began to hear strange noises. He was in the part of the bridge where it was darkest now, 
and he could barely see two feet in front of him. He was carefully watching his step when he heard a loud bang on the wall next to him. And then another. And then another. He jumped and backed up a couple of feet, startled. Then the banging got louder and more frequent. A hailstorm of bangs and thuds and scrapes were racking his ears and brain. It was like a hundred people were banging on the walls of the confinement all at once. He said he could almost see their handprints leaving marks on the walls next to him. Then he started to hear people screaming in agony, pleading for him to help. Some were speaking in English. Some were speaking in languages that he didn't recognize. But their voices were plagued with absolute desperation and madness. Confused and terrified, he turned around and started quickly walking back in the direction he came. As he turned, though, caught something out of the corner of his eye. Down towards the end, on the opposite side of the tunnel, was a figure. It was massive. It stood at least ten feet tall and appeared to be made from pure darkness. He said that was the moment when he realized why it was so dark in there. It was because of this thing. It was like the antithesis of light standing there, sucking up all the fragments of color like a demented vacuum. Then he said a face appeared on the creature, a face that was staring at him. It had two bulbous wide eyes and a smile that spanned nearly his whole head. The smile was one of utter malice. It was invading the man's mind, consuming him. The dread at that moment was like nothing he had ever felt in his entire life. If he would have stared any longer, he said, he would have gone insane. He didn't wait anymore. In a state of absolute terror, he spun around so fast that his vision got blurry. He didn't stop running until he made it all the way home. When he got back to his house, he woke up his wife and told her everything that had happened. She said he was frightening her. So he went outside and called the sheriff's station. He asked for Blake personally. Told him everything. And Blake told him to relax and that he would drive out to his house so they could talk. He wanted to calm this poor guy down. Blake did just that when he got there and managed to at least get him to stop violently shaking. They talked some more and enjoyed a cup of coffee. Blake said he would stop by again later to check up on him. Before leaving, though, The men had one last thing to add. He said that he knew if he had walked another couple of feet down that bridge, 
he wouldn't have made it back out. The half-bridge attempted suicide. The last report I read that day within the initial binder was a case involving another local. Instead of being happily married, however, like the last man, this guy was recently divorced. He had grown up here as well and had heard all the local legends surrounding the Phantom Bridge. But instead of brushing them off as mere campfire stories like the other guy, he truly believed them. This information was collected by Deputy Sheriff Kyle who was much more vocal on this case with me than he had been on the one about the missing boy. Now, this man was actually a little obsessive about the bridge, and on numerous occasions he had gone out hunting for it. He had hoped to catch a glimpse of this perplexing anomaly that only appeared to a select few. This guy had some... uh, issues, is how Kyle described him. He knew all of this because the man had treated Kyle as if he was the guy's personal therapist, spilling a whole bunch of personal information to him when he arrived on the scene that day. Given the circumstances, though, Kyle was glad the guy was chatty and filled with an odd sense of elation, rather than an overwhelming despair, which very well could have been the case. Apparently, the man's wife had had enough of him. She divorced him and took custody of the kids as well as the house. It's a real sad story, actually. The guy just couldn't catch a break. So one day, he gets really drunk and lonely and decides to take a hike to see if he can clear his head. He rode out to one of the mountain trails a little ways out of town, which puts you up at the top of this giant cliff that overlooks a raging part of the river below. It's a beautiful sight when you reach the top. You can see the river snake through the hills for miles. The water is surrounded by beautiful trees and wildlife. There was just one problem that day. This time, when the man got to the top of the cliff, he didn't find the same view he had always seen before. This time, there was half a bridge jutting out from the top of the cliff abruptly ending in midair. The man knew what it was right away, and he couldn't believe it. All those times he had gone out hunting for the damn thing and hadn't caught so much as a glimpse. And now, it was right here in front of him when he hadn't been searching for it in the least. He later told Kyle that it was a small bridge, maybe three feet wide and only about seven or eight feet long before being completely cut off. The last board was about half the size of the ones leading up to it. Like, like like someone had taken a giant saw and hacked it right down the middle. It was plain, but impossibly sturdy. He said from a structural standpoint, it made no sense. It was just jutting out from the cliff with nothing substantial to hold it up. Yet there it was, strong as a concrete plank fixed to a building and completely straight. He also said that there were ropes coming out from the sides that acted as rails where you can put your hands on. 
They were woven into a sturdy design and came about as high as his stomach. As soon as the man saw it, he knew something was wrong. It didn't bring out any sense of adventure like he had always hoped. Nothing could have prepared him for the reality that he discovered that day. The reality that began to crawl inside him and seep into his consciousness. It was manifesting something deep within him. Something sinister and frightening. Then it began to talk to him. It told him he's a loser. That he's always been a loser. It told him his wife hates him. His kids hate him. And everything he'd ever done hadn't amounted to shit because he lacked any talent or ambition. It told him his whole life was just one bad joke after another. And that his only option was to put an end to it. Right now. For good. The man began to cry, then sob uncontrollably. And he dropped to his knees because he knew it was all true. He was a loser, he thought. His kids hate his guts. And he can't even hold down a steady job because he's lazy, talentless a worthless alcoholic. That's why his marriage ended, he thought. Because his wife knew what he was and that he was incapable of change. He began to hate himself in ways he never even thought possible. In that moment, he knew there was no place for him in this world anymore. After he let this sink in for a few minutes, he knew what he had to do. He got up and without hesitation went over to the bridge. Then he began to walk it, like a plank. Now, sometime when he was on his knees sobbing, a woman, another hiker who was making her way up to the overlook, had seen him bawling and looking very unstable. By the time he got himself to the first board of the bridge, she didn't even have time to consider the structure's odd perplexities because she had realized what the man aimed to do. She dropped her backpack and broke into a sprint to try and reach him before he got to the end. He had made it about halfway when she began to scream at him. She was yelling at him to stop and turn around. She tried everything to get his attention, but none of it was working. Then, in a truly heroic fashion, She ran down the bridge and caught him just as he had reached the last board and was on his way over. She grabbed him by the arm, and he turned to look at her, which snapped him out of his trance. After a brief struggle, they both fell back into the dirt by the edge of the cliff. By the time they got up and composed themselves, the bridge had vanished, and there was nothing left but a view of the river and trees below. After it was all over, the woman called 911 from her cell phone, and they sent Kyle out to the scene while the woman waited with the man patiently. When the deputy got there, the guy was full of this bizarre energy. The look on his face was one of elation, for he had just escaped death by a fraction of an inch, and he knew it. 
Kyle expected to see a depressed mess of a man waiting there for him, but instead the guy was full of good cheer and wouldn't shut the fuck up. He willingly went with Kyle, who took him to the hospital to be evaluated. The man entered therapy after being released, and that was the last anybody at the station ever heard about him. As for the woman who had saved the guy, well, she ended up joining the force about a half a year later. She came into the sheriff's station that day after the incident, inquiring about a full-time position as a deputy. They were all impressed with her display of courage and physical strength, so they set her on the right track. Her name is Sammy. The Man Stuck in the Sky Unfortunately, not all encounters with the bridge end with someone finding a new outlook on life, as you've gathered by now from the previous reports. Sometimes, however, they're downright devastating for everybody involved. I know this firsthand, you see. For there was a time when I personally witnessed the absolute fucking evil and hides in the shadows on that river. Sometimes bodies would turn up under mysterious circumstances, and me and the other deputies would be called out to go investigate. One time, some kids found the body of a dead man caught in some driftwood about a mile out of town in a secluded little spot on the water. Me and Blake were sent to check it out. Once we got down there and saw it, I was, uh, thankful I hadn't eaten breakfast that day, because I probably would have lost it. The body was bloated and pale from being trapped in the water for who knows how long. The autopsy revealed he'd been dead for weeks, but they had trouble placing how long he'd been in the river for. What really irked me, though, was that the body was full of these strange holes everywhere. On his arms, his legs, his torso, even his head and the bottoms of his feet. It looked like someone took a giant drill and just went to town. Fragments of skin were dangling off the newly made orifices, which looked even more grotesque floating in the water. It was god-awful. And we all knew what was responsible. The man's identity was never uncovered. Yeah. I saw some real sick shit turn up in that river. But nothing was more disturbing than the man stuck in the sky. It was about eight months after I'd moved out here when we got a call from some woman who was on horseback. She'd been riding down one of the roads that lies next to the river. She was hysterical and requested we come out to her right away. When we got there, we found her sitting down on one of the banks. She tied her horse up to a nearby tree and the beast was spooked all to hell. Bucking and like the devil had gotten into him. From the first moment I saw her, she had been staring up into the sky, transfixed on something that none of us could see. 
When we climbed down and reached her, she barely acknowledged our presence before asking us if we could hear it. At first, we thought she might be a little kooky, or possibly on drugs. Then, after a bit, we heard a man begin to speak. His voice was coming from the spot where she was staring. He said he was trapped. He said he came to this town to visit his dying grandma, and after she passed, he went on his way back home. When driving out of town, he'd seen a bridge that crossed the river. He said he didn't know where it would take him, and that it looked like it just led to a dirt patch with some trees on the other side. He was feeling curious and decided to cross it in his Toyota Tacoma. When he got about halfway, everything went dark and his truck died. He was still sitting in the driver's seat and he couldn't see anything except for the light on his cell phone, which had no reception. He'd been there for at least a couple hours now, too scared to get out. So he started screaming his lungs out, hoping someone would hear him. Eventually, his screams were heard by the woman on the horse who called us out there because neither of them knew what else to do. He said it was freezing where he was, and the truck wouldn't turn on to allow him to use the heater. He sounded young, maybe in his early 20s or even his teens. We all looked at each other. Me, Blake, Sammy. We were stunned. Obviously, we had no way of reaching him. So, we told the kid to use the light on his phone to see what was around him. We thought maybe there was an exit nearby. We told him to get out of the truck and look around, but to walk very slowly and to be mindful of his surroundings. He was, uh, he was scared, and his voice was shaking, but he did what we told him to do. He said he stayed within about a 30-foot radius of his truck and only saw more darkness. He said the ground was stable, but there appeared to be no walls or ceilings of any kind. It was just blackness that stretched on for what seemed like eternity. Then he said he saw a small light from off in the distance. He got excited at this and began to scream at whatever was approaching, pleading for help. This went on for a couple of minutes. He said whatever it was, it was getting bigger by the second and it remained steadily approaching. He began to hear something like footsteps coming from it. The echo reached his ears like loud thunderclaps in the darkness, and the light pulsed with each booming crash. It was about this time he got a burst of adrenaline and started running towards it. And then... Everything changed. 
Suddenly, he began sprinting back to the truck nervously. We heard him running in the empty air, always at the same spot in the sky, no matter how far he said he'd gone. He got back in the truck, then slammed the door behind him. We heard him start to speak again. Only now there was a terror in his voice that hadn't been present before. He said things like, Oh God, and I don't want to die here. I don't want to die here. He repeated these phrases through heavy breathing. He called out to us for help, but there was nothing we could do. As useless as cattle watching an approaching train wreck. We just stood there and stared at the sky. I had already called the fire department who were on their way with the big ladder that might be able to reach him, but... Even if we could get to the spot where he was at, I knew it would be of no use. It's not like we could just reach up and grab him and pull him out of thin air. Eventually, he stopped screaming and just sat there helplessly. His cries grew more and more heartbreaking as we all reached a state of complete despair. We heard him say the thing was close now. He could see something like a face. It was radiating blinding tentacles of light that burned his eyes. He said it was like staring into a thousand suns exploding at once. He screamed at it to go away as we heard banging sounds on metal. We heard the door to the truck open again. Shortly after, the kid let out the most agonizing scream I've ever heard. He was crying and shouting, It burns! It burns! The last thing we heard was the kid's scream for his grandma. Then his voice was cut off abruptly and replaced with silence. I lost a little piece of myself that day. I think we all did. Me, Sammy, Blake, and the woman with the horse. Not being able to help that poor kid took a heavy toll on me. You don't realize how much you take for granted until everything you know is flipped inside out and you realize that sometimes things just aren't going to be okay. I don't think I'll ever fully recover from that. The Hitchhiker The last story I'm going to tell you, for now, 
is one that you won't find in any police report or documented in any file. Back in the late 1960s, there was a young man who had just pulled out of a residential neighborhood in his Buick to go for a beer run. He was now driving on a quiet road that ran parallel with the nearby river. He was a little buzzed from a half joint he smoked, and his friends were back at the house, waiting for him to return with a case of beer. He was in a social mood, but unfortunately, he had no one on this drive to be social with. So, he felt excited when he saw another long-haired young man, much like himself, sticking his thumb out while walking backwards along the road. Except, as he approached, and the hitchhiker got closer, he could see that something was wrong. The man was shirtless, hunched over and holding his stomach with his other hand. The one that he wasn't sticking out to give the universal hitchhiking gesture. You could also see the man's walk was strained and that he had a slight limp, as if it pained him to stand upright. Without hesitation, the driver pulled up next to him and he put his foot on the brake. He saw that the reason he was shirtless was because he was bleeding profusely out of the side of his stomach. He had wrapped his shirt around it tightly in an attempt to stop the bleeding. The injured man immediately hobbled over to the rear door and let himself into the back seat. He explained to the driver that he had been camping out on the river. And about 20 minutes ago, he had a run-in with some strange animal. This animal was unlike anything he had ever seen. It had horns and was about the size of a deer, but had the ability to stand upright on two legs. In his attempt to get away from it, he had slipped and fallen down an embankment, landing badly on a sharp rock. He said that he desperately needed medical attention and asked kindly if the driver could take him to the nearest hospital. The driver didn't really believe that he had seen such a creature as he described and thought that maybe the man was on hallucinogenic drugs. But he was obviously very hurt, and he was willing to put the party on hold to help the stranger who was in a bad spot. The injured man said that in order to get to the hospital, they would have to cross the river and get on the highway. He said that there was a bridge coming up after the next left that would allow them to take a much quicker route than going all the way around. The driver thought he must have misheard the man, for he had been traveling up and down this road for the past few days, frequently, and he had never seen a bridge that crossed the water. He figured the man was just woozy from his injury, or, once again, on drugs, and that he would realize his error after the upcoming turn. But, sure enough, after the bend, he saw a bridge that crossed the river a ways down. This perplexed the driver, and he began to feel that something wasn't right here. As they got closer to it, he could see that it looked old and worn, like it had been there for ages. It even had some green moss covering its big steel truss, and the frame that was close to the water was caked in orange rust. That's just not possible, he thought. Yet, 
here it was. The man in the back seat became anxious and urged him to take the bridge. He reminded him profusely not to miss it, stating that his wound was getting worse and taking the long way could be bad for him. Upon reaching the turn that led to its deck, the driver slowed the car to a crawl and hesitated. He then explained his predicament, divulging that it wasn't there the past few days and that it didn't look right. The injured man laughed and assured him there was nothing to worry about. He chalked up the fact that he had no memory of it to the driver being unobservant. The driver thought this was possible, but he couldn't deny that the closer they got, the more uneasy he was feeling. Ultimately, he drove past it which sparked a serious reaction from the man in the back seat. His urgent but friendly demeanor dropped, and he sounded angry now. He told the driver he was being inconsiderate, and that he was in pain and needed attention right now. The driver explained it wouldn't take much longer to head down to Red Rock Avenue and cut across the highway there. What was before a mixed expression of gratitude and pained cringes on the hitchhiker's face suddenly became something sinister. He narrowed his eyebrows and glared at the driver through the rear view. Then, he leaned forward, close to the driver's ear, and began to insult him. He called him a sissy and mocked him for being scared of the bridge. And he raised his voice and demanded that he turn back around. The driver was becoming increasingly more frightened as this man became more unpredictable. The hitchhiker was berating him now, calling him stupid and blind for not noticing the bridge before. The driver considered pulling over and forcing the man out of his car, sensing that he might be in danger. The man continued his verbal assault and started banging on the headrest of the driver's seat, enraged. The driver was just about to stop the car when all at once, the man stopped with hysterics and leaned back in his seat calmly. A sudden air of collectedness washed over him. Then, he said something that chilled the driver to his very core. What he said was, The veil that separates us withers with each soul devoured. All that crawls behind the curtain soon cross over. And there is nothing your gods can do to save you. Just then, something dashed across the road and the driver slammed on his brakes. It looked like a large, deformed animal with horns that protruded from different parts of its head. Only it ran on two legs before getting down on all four again and disappearing into the brush. It was fast, but its walk seemed stunted somehow. Its legs were a mess of odd contorted angles that swayed grotesquely with each step. It had a face like a person, but it was covered in hair. For just one second, 
It turned its gaze upon the driver, and he felt a chill that overpowered his whole body. He was temporarily stuck. He couldn't even move his hands from the wheel. He could only stare until the creature disappeared into the bushes and was gone. Once he regained movement, he turned his head to look in the back seat. The man was gone. Just as the creature was. The driver tried to forget that day. Tried to drown it out with whiskey and other substances in the beginning. But the memory never dulled. It was always as sharp as the moment it happened. And he could recall it with a fierce intensity that he sometimes shared with others. The first time he told me, I was about 13 years old. We were making s'mores around a bonfire in the backyard. He asked me if I wanted to hear a ghost story. After he was done, I asked him where he'd heard that one before. When he said it actually happened to him, I laughed and told him he was full of shit. But the look on his face said otherwise. I've never seen the same look on my father's face since, and I don't think I'll ever forget it. I'm not sure if I'll ever forget those words either, the ones the hitchhiker told him before he vanished. All that crawls behind the curtain will soon cross over. And there is nothing your gods can do to save you. Yes, I've been thinking about those words a lot as of late. I never put too much stake in his story. Half of me used to think he was just trying to get a rise out of us whenever he would tell some new friend of mine to gather around for a ghost story during our camping trips. They would always be scared shitless after that. Paranoid of every bump and scrape they heard in the woods. So I guess my dad did enjoy the excitement of scaring others just for the hell of it. Now, I realize he liked having a spooky little story to tell and pretend it didn't bother him anymore. When, in reality, he just needed to get it out. Each retelling was like therapy for him in a way. But those words, every time he would say those words, they always haunted me. I've memorized them, the same as he has, ever since I was a kid. And now they've taken on a whole new meaning to me. Like I said, my family has history in this little town. And now, so do I.
In our final tale, we're invited to share in the joy of a young couple as they find a wonderful apartment. It's within their price range and it suits their every need. Marvelous! But in this tale, shared with us by author T. Michael Argent, we're reminded that there's always a catch. And in this case, a bedroom window that faces an outside wall. Well, not too bad. It could be worse. Right? Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight and Mary Murphy. So try not to dwell on the flaw in your dwelling. If you try hard enough, you might be able to ignore it. But if you keep staring, then you only have yourself to blame if you see the man in the alley. Claire and I searched high and low for an apartment in our price range. Unfortunately, the dismal pays of our job and a finicky housing market in such a large city meant we weren't able to find much. We toured an endless parade of sad, lonely rooms with ugly 70s carpeting and enough peeling wallpaper to plaster an entire house. Claire's parents allowed us to stay in the guest room of their brownstone, but it became clear our presence was wearing thin. Just when I thought we'd have to settle for something the size of a pillbox, Claire came running into our room one night with her laptop. Amanda, look. Look at this place. She thrust it into my hands, pointing excitedly at the listing on the screen. It advertised a moderately sized but comfortable five-room apartment in the Bracken Park neighborhood. It was only $900 a month and a 10-minute train ride from work for either of us. It had an attractive galley-style kitchen, relatively new carpeting, and closets in both bedrooms. I smiled at her. Okay, what's the catch? Does the exterminator need to be called every other week? She shook her head. I'm serious. I've looked all over the pictures and read the description. It sounds too good to be true. That it does. I scrolled through the listing. It wasn't the Ritz, but it was better than any other place we'd seen before. Oh, here it is. Claire pointed to a microscopic line of text near the bottom. It says it's on the ground floor of the building. Window space and alley. I shrugged. So what if we don't get a view? I want to see it. On Friday afternoon, we took the train from Claire's parents' place. Twenty minutes later, we found ourselves in front of a ramshackle brick building, four stories tall with small windows dotting the face. We followed the realtor down a flight of stairs behind a gate in the front entrance. Down a carpeted hall, we stopped at a small door with 105 engraved on it. The pictures really did the place justice. The living and dining rooms were one space with an open archway to the kitchen. A short hall led to two bedrooms and a bathroom. The previous owners had obviously loved the place well. It was inviting and cozy with soft rose-colored carpet and walls paneled in light wood. Claire stared out the window in the bedroom at the end of the hall. I wish this face the street or something. A little more interesting than just a brick wall. It was true. All we could see was the side of the building next to us. The concrete floor of the alley was cracked and chipped. A breeze gusted in the thin space between the apartments, creating a eerie, hollow sound. Claire shivered. Oh, that's gonna keep me up at night. In the end, we decided to sign the papers that day. It was more than we could ask for our first place together. Claire's parents acted sad, but were secretly happy to hear we were moving out. 
A week later, after all the formalities were cleared, we moved our things inside. The first night was pure bliss. We cooked spaghetti in our new kitchen and watched a few episodes of CSI on a laptop on the living room floor, trying not to drip sauce on the carpet. After eating, we were tempted to give up unpacking and get out some sleeping bags, but we managed to overcome our laziness and set up our bed in the room at the end of the hall. As Claire laid the sheets, I leaned over and gave her a kiss. I'm glad we finally found a place. She smiled. Me too. Things went well for our first week. It took us a few more days to get everything out of the boxes. We celebrated by having some friends over for dinner. We thought the apartment would be too small to fit everyone comfortably, but the party turned out fine. Everyone oohed and awed over the stuff we set up. Even though we hadn't been there long, I could tell we'd stay for quite some time. I can't remember if I first saw the man in the alley the night of the party or the night after. Sometimes I wonder how differently things could have gone if I bought curtains sooner. It wouldn't have stopped what happened, but it would have downplayed Claire and I's involvement. Our old blinds were lost in the move and we'd been putting off going to the store. I'm not sure exactly what time I woke up that night. I just remember opening my eyes and seeing him standing outside the window. There were streetlights on the sidewalk on either side of the alley, so there was just enough illumination to make out small details. He wore a tattered brown coat with the collar pulled all the way up. He stood stiff as a board with his back to the window like he was staring at the wall of the opposite building. The eerie whistling sound through the alley started up. As if on cue, the man went limp, his legs bending slightly. He slowly lifted his right arm above his head, letting the fingers dangle. There was a moment's pause. Then he began twirling on his feet. His movements were odd and jerky, like there was something on his shoe he was trying to shake off. His arms moved mechanically, lifting and lowering them in time as if to some unheard piece of music. He flounced in and out of the shadows, managing to keep his face pointed towards the opposite wall the whole time. This went on for nearly three minutes. Just when I considered shaking Claire awake... He suddenly stopped his movements and went limp again. He lifted his left leg up very high and brought it down like a cartoon character tiptoeing. Though his whole body pointed to the right as he jerked out of my line of sight down the alley, his head never moved from facing the opposite wall. I laid there in the dark for several minutes afterwards, trying to process what I had just seen. Goosebumps crept up my arms. Who was that man? Why was he in the alley so late at night? I told Claire what I saw in the morning as we got ready for work. She looked a little troubled, but shrugged it off. Amanda, this isn't exactly the nicest section of the city. I bet it was just some junkie jumping at shadows or something. I wouldn't worry too much about it. The last sentence was easier said than done. I spent most of the afternoon daydreaming, thinking about the unnatural angle the man's neck was bent. That evening, while I entered the building, I looked down the alley that ran parallel to our window. It was empty, save for a few pieces of litter. I frowned and hoped he wouldn't come around again that night. Throughout dinner, Claire and I talked about what happened. We both concluded it was probably a one-off encounter. Besides, he hadn't even looked inside. That put my mind at ease. Just before we went to bed, I made a mental note to go to the store the next day and buy curtains. Even though I felt better, I slept that night facing away from the window. The whistling sound still came from the alley, but... In a way, it felt comforting. I fell asleep quicker than expected. When I opened my eyes hours later, I knew he was outside. The clock on the nightstand flashed 2.15. I felt his eyes burning into me even though my back was to him. 
I laid there for several seconds, scared out of my wits, trying to decide what to do. I couldn't just go back to sleep. I rolled over and looked out the window. He stood about five feet away, facing our building this time. He wore the same ratty brown coat. I couldn't make out any further details because it was so dark. Despite the shadows that prevented me from seeing his face above the upturned collar, I was sure he was looking directly into the room. He resumed the same flat position, arms against his side, legs stiff together. Without warning, he took another one of his long, cartoony steps forward. He brought his arms out and above his head, the hands and fingers angled downward like he was doing a Dracula impression. He held that position for a few moments while I continued to stare, petrified. Another step brought him within three feet. One of the neighbors upstairs must have had their lights on, because a single beam managed to puncture the wall of darkness that covered his face. His skin was gray and sallow, the hair on his head blowing slightly in the breeze. His mouth was downturned in a frown, lips almost reaching to his chin. One eye was open, the other closed. I saw dark spots covering the lid, whitish and swollen. He took another step and was almost to the window, his fingertips against the glass. I leaned over to shake Claire. As I did, the man brought his arms down, nails scratching loudly on the pane. Claire opened her eyes and turned over. Amanda, what? She looked towards the window, a gasp caught in her throat. (gasps) What the fuck? I reached over to grab my phone. The screeching nails against the glass intensified as the man increased his speed, swinging his arms up and down like he was directing a plane. Just as I dialed 911, the man froze. He stopped his jerking movements and turned his face up to stare. Several tense seconds passed. Without another sound, he turned robotically to the right and took more exaggerated steps further down the alley, disappearing into the night. It was hard explaining to the cops that arrived 20 minutes later what happened. As the officer took our statements, two others walked around the alley with flashlights, looking for someone we knew wouldn't be there. The officer offered a car to be sent to drive by the alley a few times the next night, but after that, there wasn't much they could do. We could call if anything else strange happened. He apologized that he couldn't help beyond the formalities and left. It wasn't much comfort, but it was better than nothing. Claire and I made sure to get off early the next day so we could buy curtains. We picked out a heavy set with a view of the New York City skyline on it. Tacky, but they would get the job done. We hung them up as soon as we got home. As the hours ticked by and night rapidly approached, I sensed the apprehension in the air. We ate dinner in silence and went to bed after a few hours of TV. As I turned off the light, I stared at the vista of buildings printed on the curtains. Not a single ray of light passed through. The room was pitch black. Claire smiled as I got into bed. This should scare that guy away. When I woke up at dawn, I didn't feel at ease right away. I hadn't woken up during the night, which was a good sign, but what if the man had been there anyway? staring right outside the window. Quietly, without waking Claire, I slipped out of bed and opened the curtains. The white scratches of the man's fingernails on the glass stood starkly in the early morning light. I tried to remember how many there were the previous day and if there were more now, but I couldn't remember. I thought the curtains would have relaxed me. But while we dressed and left for work, it was clear that neither of us were feeling better. As Claire and I kissed goodbye, we hugged for a few moments longer. On the train ride home that evening, I wondered if the cops had driven by the previous night like they said they would. Maybe the man never came at all. Maybe he was there the whole time, 
doing his strange waltz. I thought about looking at new listings when I got home. Claire had obviously been as rattled as I was because she suggested we stay at her parents' place that night. But it was a Tuesday, and their townhouse was a half-hour train ride to our works. In the end, we decided to stay. The bedtime ritual went as usual. Close the curtains, turn off the lights, lay with my back to the window. Before I fell asleep, I managed to convince myself that nothing would happen. I should have known better. What woke me up at 2 a.m. wasn't the feeling of the man's eyes on me, but I'm sure I could have sensed them through the fabric. No, it was the frantic scratching of his fingernails on the window. I sat upright in bed and turned to stare. There was an inch-wide gap in the center of the curtains. I saw his arms waving frantically as they attacked the glass. Claire? I shook her awake and she sat up as well. Her eyes widened in anger. Not this time. She got up and threw the curtains open. The man was framed in the window, his fingernails still screeching. His shadowy face pointed directly at Claire's. She took a step back and cried out. (gasps) The man suddenly stopped his assault and resumed the still, Dracula-like position. His head shifted towards us and caught in the neighbor's light again. His skin had taken on a greenish hue and I could see dark spots of rot dotting his face. We both screamed. Without warning, he started floating backwards. His feet left the ground as he rose away from the window, swinging in the air like a pendulum. He reached the apex of his flight six feet up the other wall. Claire and I did nothing but stare. A few seconds passed, then, without warning, he came swinging towards the window. We backed up, falling against the bed. The man hit the glass with enough force to crack it. Dark blood exploded on the pane, spurting out of his broken nose. He floated back again, taking another swing and crashed hard. A crack in the skin blossomed on his forehead, dribbling more blood and revealing a slice of his skull. The man swung back and hit again a few more times, each creating more cracks and covering the window with red. We barely saw him through the mess of blood and hair. One more strike and I was sure the glass would shatter. He backed up again. Claire and I prepared to run out of the room. His flight towards us was slower this time, coming to a rest right outside. We stared at his ruined face as he glared lifelessly back. The man suddenly jerked upwards, half his body disappearing above the top of the frame. He flailed like a rag doll. I heard a few sickening cracks and knew it was coming. With one final crack, his head, arms, and legs from the knee down came away from his body, the rest falling past the window and hitting the alley floor with a loud thud. His limbs and head hung in the air for a moment, without a torso, before disappearing upward. I could barely talk while Claire called the cops. The dispatcher didn't believe us at first, but agreed to send a car out. A few minutes after they arrived, we heard one of the officers outside throw up. We were later told the man had been dead for at least a week. His head, arms, and lower legs were found on the roof, thick wires sewn and weaved into them. The rest of him lay in a bloody heap in the alley below. The detective tried to tell us that he must have hung himself in that bizarre fashion from the eaves and the rope had finally broken. I could tell he was grasping at straws for an explanation. We left the apartment a few days later and moved to a new neighborhood. Most nights, I lie awake thinking. I wonder who the man was. I wonder how he ended up like that. And most of all, I wonder who was up there on the roof, controlling his body like a marionette, making him dance outside our window.
As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace no sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.